Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of Marine Corps University. Today, we're discussing On Contested Shores, the evolving role of amphibious operations in the history of warfare, published by Marine Corps University Press. My guests today are Timothy Heck and Brett Friedman, the editors of the book. Tim Heck is the Deputy Editorial Director for the Modern War Institute at West Point. He's an artillery officer by trade and is currently a reservist with the Joint History Office, Marine Corps History Division, and we are delighted that he has been selected for promotion to Lieutenant Colonel. He's currently teaching Innovation for Great Power Competition, the U.S. Army from Vietnam to Desert Storm for Marine Corps University's College of Distance Education and Training. Brett Friedman is a strategic assessment analyst and author of On Tactics, A Theory of Victory in Battle, and the forthcoming On Operations, Operational Art and Military Disciplines, both from the Naval Institute Press. He's also a major in the Marine Corps Reserves, currently serving with the 6th Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company at Joint Base Lewis-McChord, Washington. Gentlemen, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks so much. Before we get into the meat of the book, can you two give our listeners some background on what led you to this project? And Tim, we can start with you. Yeah. So, I mean, Brett and I have known each other since we went to officer candidate school in 2004. And we've just, you know, kind of bounced ideas off of each other. I was working on a chapter that didn't wind up getting into the book because I haven't finished it yet on a Soviet amphibious operation and realized there just wasn't good current stuff out there. So it, it came out of a out of a gap in recent scholarship, right? Merrill Bartlett's Assault from the Sea is kind of the classic, it's, it's the high watermark in many ways of edited volumes on amphibious operations, but it was 20 years old or almost 30 years old by the time we started and started working on this project. So it came out of a gap and then a text message to Brett said, hey dude, do you want to write a book on amphibious operations? And the response was uh, in typical marine faction, some I think, you know, some profanity and a gif came back to me and it was, or gif, I don't know how you pronounce that. Well, ask the kids. And that's what started the project. Great. So Brett, this book is a monster. It is over 400 pages long. Your selected further reading section in the back is 23 pages single spaced. Does the book have a unifying argument beyond amphib ops good, amphib ops important? Or is it a collection of essays that happen to sequence chronologically? If there's a unifying argument, it's that amphibious operations is about a lot more than the amphibious assault, uh, which most people associate with the term. The two terms are not equivalent. Amphibious assault is a type of amphibious operation, but not the only type. And I think the size of the book, especially in the selected readings, really reflects that this is a much broader topic than most people think if they're not familiar with it. And that was, you know, that speaks to kind of the goal of the book. Uh, We were, Tim and I were both researching amphibious operations from different angles, different perspectives, but running into the same problem, which was just a paucity of sources about lower scale amphibious raids, uh, amphibious demonstrations, all the other flavors of amphibious operation that don't involve Iwo Jima or Normandy. And uh, so, yeah, that, that, that's really the overarching goal and overarching thesis is that this is a much broader topic than most people think it is. And the goal was to kind of open people's eyes to that. And how significant an oversight is it? Because you do mention in the introduction that there are raids, there are amphibious withdrawals, demonstrations, amphibious support operations. And understandably, the Marine Corps in particular focuses on the amphibious assault portfolio. 
But if that's what the Marine Corps is most likely to do, and if that's the high end of the capability and skills continuum, is it a big deal that we tend to overlook these other lower end activities? I I think it is, and I think it's demonstrated by the response to General Berger's Force Design 2030 and Commandant's Planning Guidance, where he said we are going to focus more on diversifying some of our connectors, some of our platforms, and doing things in a different way. And uh, as soon as that comes out, you get all kinds of articles about how the, the identity of the Marine Corps is changing and other things like that. And the General Berger is slaying sacred cows. And he didn't do any of that, in my opinion. He just realized that we were overinvested in one particular type of amphibious operation and wanted to make sure we were able to cover down on all of them because all of them is the purpose of the Marine Corps, amphibious operations, not amphibious assaults. And, you know, you can look at uh, the Army likes to say, well, they do amphibious assaults too. Well, that's great, but they don't do a lot of the other forms of amphibious operations, which we should be able to do. So I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of very shallow impressions of what the Marine Corps should be and what the Marine Corps can do. And that uh, we need to kind of move beyond just the amphibious assault, not just theoretically or academically, like we tried with this book, but practically as well. That makes good sense. Tim, do you have anything on this question? Is it important that the Marine Corps embrace the entire spectrum of amphibious operations? Are we going to be left flat-footed maybe if our training and our doctrine at our PME continuum doesn't embrace this broader set of missions? I think we are. You know, I think when you, you look at the purpose of the MU, right, which is kind of the building block and the, and the really selling point of the Marine Corps to a combatant commander, it's we can do lots of things. And yeah, some of it is over the beach, over the log wall. You know, this is, this is Tarawa Redux. But most of what we do is a lot lower. In 2003, right? So we've invaded Iraq. We're, we're sitting in Baghdad. And a Mew gets pulled out and goes and does a Neo off of West Africa, right? We're going into Liberia again, right? The 90s, we were in and out of these places. You know, and, and going back to kind of that Marine Corps history. Yeah, look, Tarawa, Iwo Jima, Okinawa, Guadalcanal, amazing operations and, and the bedrock of who we are as a service. They are not the bedrock of what we do all day, every day. They are the framing on which we build our other capabilities, right? That amphibious assault, I think, is the the skeleton. And the, the added meat is the raid, is the withdrawal, is the, you know, these, these support to amphibious operations that we can do. Otherwise, you know, we're a one-trick pony. And if there's no over the beachhead assault, then what's the point? And and I think I think Brett nailed it, right? General Berger sees that we did go a little all in. And I, you know, I don't know if we went all in on being a second land army, but we certainly kind of went all in on amphibious assault. And if we're going to maintain relevancy as a service, then we have to provide the combatant commanders something worth having. We have to give the nation something other than a really amazing statue just outside of DC. So I think there there is the requirement that we diversify our understanding in an academic sense and in a practical sense too. Well, yeah. And it's, I would say that both of your answers to that question provide a really good foil or context for the book. And we can't discuss every chapter in detail because you've got 17 historical case studies and six conceptual forward-looking pieces. 
But, but there I think is that overlying unifying theme of the book. I don't like jargon, but what I am hearing, or maybe how I am analyzing your comments is to say that the Marine Corps might not be a one trick pony with amphibious assault, but it's a really good trick and the Marine Corps is really good at it. But it is also important in 2021 that the Marine Corps be agile, that we have this ability to do more than just the one thing. And these other types of amphibious operations provide that additional workout for individuals to train to so that individual Marines have the mental agility to be able to flex from mission to mission, but that the force as an institution has the institutional agility to be able to flex as necessary. But what I would like for us to do is to dig into a couple of the chapters in the book just to give the listeners a a flavor of the overall project. And again, I will use this opportunity to plug our Marine Corps University Press. If you would like to read this wonderful edited volume, you can get it free of charge uh, through the Marine Corps University Press website, or you can also reach out to them and they would be delighted to mail you a free hard copy of the book. So, This is a Marine Corps podcast, and so let's start with the chapter on Gallipoli. The author goes into great detail using Gallipoli as a case study to develop the understanding of World War II amphibious doctrine. What made Gallipoli such an integral part of amphibious doctrine? And to tee into something that Brett mentioned a couple of minutes ago, do you guys see any parallels between that interwar period and today's core, either what came out of the Commandant's planning guidance, we'll dig into that in a little bit in a minute, but Force Design 2030, does that period inform what we're doing today, or is it a false analogy that people like to draw between the interwar period and where we are in the 2020s, a century later? And I'll kick that over to either Brett or Tim, whoever would like to answer it. But the key question is, what makes Gallipoli such an important part of amphibious doctrine? I'll take that. And, you know, so I think... I'm going to jump ahead to to jump back. You can have a flash forward and a flashback. That's what we do. You know, in, in the 1920s, we had just come out of the First World War. The world was kind of looking around and shaking itself off. And, and you had doctrinal proponents that were advocating for defense. You had doctrinal proponents that were advocating for armor. You know, and JFC Fuller out of, out of the UK. And there was just a lot of intellectual ferment. And I don't necessarily like that term, but that just keeps coming to, to mind when you think about this. And so the Marine Corps, right, who's who's spent from about the Civil War until 1917, 1918, mostly as a colonial police force, suddenly is fighting in France and then has to figure out what it's going to do, right? So War Plan Orange and Pete Ellis goes out and is doing all of this research. And in 1921, Colonel Robert H. Dunlop writes an article in the Marine Corps Gazette about Gallipoli and says, hey, you know, I, we have, because in 1920, you know, the new assignment approved by the Joint Army and Navy Board says the most important function of the Marine Corps is to seize and hold temporary advanced bases in cooperation with the fleet and to defend such bases until they are relieved by the Army. So we have to go out and seize a base. And how do you do that? You know, this is the era before vertical envelopment. This is the era before common aircraft. That means either I'm marching over land, which significantly restricts where I'm thinking of operating, unless I want to go invade Ontario, or I'm coming from the sea. And so the Marine Corps has to look to examples. And he's got two major examples in the First World War. The first is Albion, which is the German landings in the Baltic. And the second is Gallipoli. And you know, I don't think Angus covers it in his chapter, but certainly the language difficulty of German-speaking 
authors reduces the likelihood that you're going to find good sources on Albion. Whereas Australian English and American English aren't that much different. And, and Kiwi English, I don't want to, I don't want to drop the Kiwis or the Brits or the French in there, right? So you've got a, you've got a, a source base that's, that's accessible. And so Colonel Dunlop, later General Dunlop writes this article and we start digging into using Gallipoli if for no other reason than it's kind of the only one out there, right? So if you're going to today talk about a counterinsurgency fight, you've got plenty of examples, but if it's 1965 and you're talking about a counterinsurgency fight, you're looking at a significantly smaller framing, right? So you're looking at, at Malaya or you're looking at the Philippines. The 1920s Marine Corps is a similar place. We've, we've got a mission. It's been agreed upon. We've got an assignment. Well, now how do we go about figuring out what to do with it? And you could certainly look at you know, some of the earlier chapters in there for, for ideas, but technology-wise and capabilities, right? Aircraft, naval guns, radios. The best example that we have is Gallipoli. And so it becomes a foundational point for our doctrine as it, you know, on a, on a larger scale becomes a foundational event, you know, for national identities in Turkey, New Zealand, and, and Australia. And does it continue to serve as the model today? I, I think the failures of Gallipoli serve as a model for today. Uh, we talk about, you know, I think General Mattis made the comment about, you know, the the three thousand year old brain and a twenty four year old lieutenant's head. You know, we talk about the failures at Gallipoli, right? The failure of joint planning, the failure of logistics, the failure of accounting for basic medical requirements, right? So the failures get baked into us today, but we have had in the intervening period multiple successful amphibious operations and Gallipoli is an assault. So we'll, we'll focus on the assault, right? We assaulted Tara, we assaulted Peleliu. We, I say we, as if I was there, I wasn't, but you know, the lessons are baked into what comes out in the 1920s and the 1930s as we go and as the Marine Corps goes and lands in Puerto Rico and practices these events, right? Watching the Japanese land in China. So it's there, it's, it's underlying all of this. And I know if we're, if we're going to call the amphibious assault, the, the skeleton that we hang Marine Corps capabilities off of, I'd say that, you know, an event like Gallipoli is probably the bone marrow. It's in there, it's not visible, but it's highly important. And you don't think about it until something goes wrong. I think that's a really interesting perspective. This idea of how either faults or practices, ways of interpreting it gets baked into our understanding of how we engage a scenario or a potential scenario and then how we respond to it. And Brett, I want to turn to your chapter. You look at the future of amphibious operations and argue for optimizing the force through focusing on amphibious raids instead of amphibious assaults. How or, or maybe why does this align more closely with the direction the Commandant is trying to take the Corps in 2021? Why would we focus more on raids than assaults if the, the main argument for the book is we need to be able to do all of it? Are we overcorrecting to just look at raids or to predominantly look at raids? Well, I'll say it, uh, it fits, fits in very well with uh, General Berger's guidance. At the time I wrote this, General Berger was, uh, oh, was DCCD and I, and I was uh, a contractor working for the Marine Corps at the time looking at the amphibious assault and how it would work in the near future, looking out about uh, 10 years. Uh, and this chapter was pretty much my personal thoughts on it. And I think later when General Berger became Commandant and uh, released the Commandant's Planning Guidance and Force Design 2030, it seemed like uh, we were thinking a little bit about uh, along the same lines. 
Brett, that's a humble brag if I've ever heard one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to take too much credit. I did work for him. So it wasn't like me coming up with these ideas and saying, hey, General Berger, you should think about this. It was me. Say, it was him saying, hey, contractor, I've never met work on this. And then I had some personal thoughts that I put in the article. Uh, and I think if you look at EABO, EABO is designed to put Marine Corps capabilities ashore for a small amount of time to do a certain task and then return and get back and go somewhere else. And that's an amphibious raid. We're projecting power from the sea with a planned withdrawal for a certain mission and then uh, recovering those assets to use them somewhere else. Why it's called expeditionary advanced base operations uh, instead of expeditionary advanced raiding operations is probably the acronym that ERO is not as cool as EABO, but I think that's essentially what it is. It is can the Marine Corps use small scale raids to influence operations and support not just the Navy primarily, but the joint force as well. Uh, and that's what it's designed to do. It's how do we do these small scale raids in a naval campaign? And, you know, some of those might turn into assaults uh, if we have to permanently occupy something. Uh, some of them might turn into demonstrations if we're merely trying to divert an opponent's attention to a certain area, vice another area. But I think that's uh, we're kind of right in the black when it comes to shooting for being able to use all the toolkits in the amphibious operations or all of the tools in the amphibious operations toolkit vice just the assault. So I think we actually got kind of lucky. We did start this book before uh, that guidance was publicly released. So, yeah, it's kind of worked out well for us. It is always good uh, when your hard work turns into something that is both timely and relevant. <laughs> so kudos to you on that one. I want us to to end our discussion of the book itself with a topic that understandably I personally am going to find to be important, and that is the role of professional military education in preparing Marines for this constellation of mission sets related to amphibious operations. And you have a specific chapter uh, that looks at the evolution of Marine Corps officer education during the interwar period, focusing on the role General Breckinridge played. And of course, Marine Corps University headquarters is housed in Breckinridge Hall. General Breckinridge, critical to education reform and the inclusion of landing operations in the curriculum here at the Marine Corps schools, laying the foundation for operations in the Pacific theater. What should we be doing here at MCU now within our curricula to help prepare Marines for the battlefields of the future? And I would also, if possible, uh, we tend to focus on officer education, but, you know, of the 100,000 students that we've got here at Marine Corps University every year, the overwhelming majority of them are enlisted Marines. So I would also like you to please take a couple of minutes to talk about what we should be doing in enlisted PME to help prepare them for this mission set. So. You know, when, when I went to EWS, went to EWS, I, I took Scantron tests. You know, I was probably the last guy to take the Scantron box of books, EWS. Uh, and when I took command and staff college, it was a decidedly different engagement, right? It was Blackboard. It was a little bit more iterative, it, um, more Socratic in some ways, as Socratic as you can make Blackboard, right? There was more critical thinking than what is the form you use to embark an Amtrak for the third wave, which was some of the questions in, in the Amphib chapters or the Amphib lessons in in EWS. So I think Marine Corps University, by shifting its current focus to a much more discussion-based and critical thinking 
model is is on the right direction. I see it here approaching it from two perspectives, one teaching as an adjunct faculty there, right? I've been given the opportunity to talk about great power competition and innovation and modern war and all of that using the army as a model, right? And so we're in week seven of my eight-week course. Desert Storm is happening. Uh, so when I get off of this call, I'm going to go check the posts and see if if we've breached the berm yet. But next week, we take the lessons of the previous seven weeks and and look at the Army and the Marine Corps of today. And I hope somebody also looks at the Navy. I didn't include it, but, you know, obviously we're, we're a naval service. The Marine Corps, by offering those opportunities, is certainly, I think, better serving its student population. The enlisted side of the house, though, I think there there's always room for growth. Obviously, you know, we, we have the smallest officer to enlisted ratio or so largest enlisted to officer ratio of all the services. They are the reason we are uh, as successful as we are. I, I had a Marine when I was at, at Fourth Anglico who had just finished corporal's course, right? We, we was a Lance Corporal. You could take corporal's course at the time. And I said, hey, what'd you learn? And he said, I learned the parts of the sword. And I thought, your job is to jump out of airplanes, use a radio and blow stuff up. And the PME you took, like the lesson you took out of your fundamental education as a soon-to-be NCO are the parts of the sword. Oh God, we're doing something wrong. Unfortunately, I had an amazing staff NCOs who, you know, said, yep, hey, the parts of a sword are very important. Now here's your radio and here's how you lead and here's how you think critically as a fire supporter. And so one of the things, and you referenced the chapter on Breckenridge, right? The author is Bruce Gudmundson. Bruce Gudmundson is a well-known figure in the halls of MCU and kind of in this space. And he has, I don't know if he's come up with, but he has been a very strong proponent of the decision-forcing case study, right? Which is a revised and improved version of the TDG, right? The tactical decision game, which I thought was some of the best stuff we did at the basic school, right? We were doing TDGs constantly. But now we have this opportunity using historical examples and using, you know, not just, all right, you're the squad leader, you're a platoon commander, but like, hey, you've got this really complex scenario and you're, you know, when we went up to McMullen, to the McMullen Naval History Symposium at the Naval Academy, and Brett and I hosted a panel, Bruce was a member, and we had midshipmen in there. And he starts calling them admiral and making them think about what it's like to be an admiral in the fleet and making these critical decisions. And their eyes lit up, right? So that TDG model works across the spectrum, right? I'm a major. You call me general and I'm suddenly building the campaign plan. Great. I'm going to think and have to act like that general. I take that Lance Corporal who's telling me about the parts of the sword and I go, hey, Gunny, I need you to do this. Hey, Captain, because you're on an Anglico team and your captain just got killed. You're the captain now. You know, definitely not in a Tom Hanks boat movie sort of way, but you've got to think at that level. And, and so I think when we talk about enlisted PME and when we talk about officer PME, Decision-forcing case studies is a fantastic way to encourage critical thinking, buttressed by doctrine, buttressed by self, you know, self-pitch here, buttressed by stuff like our book, right? You've got examples. So you can either build your decisions out of there or you can reference them and go, hey, in a similar situation, so-and-so did X. I'm going to do that as well because I think why. Brett, I know you've got to have some thoughts on this. Yeah, so actually, I want to turn it around a little bit and talk about what we should be doing less of, uh, and that's McPeepee. I am, yeah, Tim is uh, cheering in the background here, but uh, I am a fan of McPeepee. I understand how it works. I understand how to use it and the benefits it provides, but 
running someone through a practical application on the Marine Corps planning process is training. It is in doctrine. It is not complex. It is not difficult to learn. And I think uh, we use too much of our very precious education time on training officers to do the Marine Corps planning process when they should arrive at uh, PME already well-versed in that process. And I think that would give us more time for, like Tim was saying, with the tactical decision games, war games, other ways to educate the mind to do these things rather than go through a rope process. As useful as it is, it's easy enough that it could be done at a t- in a two-week training course in the fleet rather than a primary focus of PME. Well, listeners, we've had a good run. I firmly believe that with that answer, uh, Eagles, Globes, and Anchors podcast is going to be taken off the air permanently. If you think of a sacred cow beyond the MAGTAF itself, it might be the instruction on the Marine Corps planning process in our PME institutions. So, Brett, I think you raise a really valid point about this delineation between training and education and what we should be prioritizing within the schoolhouses. But I think you are are also right to suggest that 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 would be a pretty significant sea change in how we approach curriculum here at MCU. So I'm all for it. And they're not actually going to take the podcast off the air. But I anticipate some people are going to be scratching their heads when they hear this section of this particular episode. What surprised you two as you were working on this project? Was there ever a moment where you were scratching your head either in disbelief or in surprise and wonder at some of the things that the various authors had turned up? Uh, yeah, so I've, I've, I've focused on uh, editing the kind of the future conceptual chapters that uh, came at the end. And I was really surprised uh, by the different topics we got. Uh, Sue Comarath wrote uh, on naval special warfare for us. And I never would have thought that uh, we would have been covering naval special warfare in this volume. It's just something that hadn't occurred to me. Uh, same thing with Ellen Allness's chapter on Russia and Maskarovka and the Arctic. Again, just a topic that to me came out of nowhere and uh, kind of demonstrates that, you know, when Tim and I recognize that this subject of amphibious operations is far more diverse than most people think, it's actually far more diverse than we thought because I was surprised by these two uh, chapters in particular. And they're great chapters and we're really thankful they wrote for us. Uh, so that was really nice to get surprised in the process of putting together the book. Yeah, I'll say having looked through the different chapters, I was really impressed with the, I'll say, geographic breadth of the project. You sort of assume that it's going to be focused on U.S. military action or European military action, but you all, I think, had a very comprehensive view in terms of the case studies that are included in the book. Uh, and that chapter on the Arctic is fantastic. So yeah, uh, I think it was definitely value added for individuals who, who have the time to take a look at it. Last question here on the podcast, we ask all of our guests, what are you reading right now that our listeners should know about? Doesn't have to have anything to do with amphibious operations, though certainly it might. And Tim, I'll turn it over to you first. So I'm reading David Stahill's Retreat from Moscow which is about the German retreat in 1941-1942. Michigan War Studies Review has asked me to do a review of the book. I'm, I'm flattered and honored to do it because he is he's, he's one of the big authors in the field. But I'm working with, with Walker Mills, whose chapter on EABO is in our book, 
on a book entitled Armies in Retreat right now. So it's giving me things to you know jot down and say, okay, Walker, hey, like we have to mention this, we have to mention that. And I think part of the reason that I think it's it's recommended reading is you talk about an army that was logistically overstretched and winds up getting outmatched and somehow holds itself together. And I think that goes in some ways to the quality of, of the company grade officers and, and of the NCOs and the training and the education that they received. But thinking about it from the perspective of a staff officer, thinking about it from the perspective of a historian, there's a lot in there of going, ooh, if we campaign, we should not do X or we should consider Y. And certainly, you know, as, as Walker and I work on armies in retreat, the U.S. doesn't have a great track record of winning the first few fights. And so you have to think about what do we do when something goes wrong? It's not something that we often do training for, right? We, we don't plan for having to withdraw in the middle of the night from a company position. Or, you know, we, we kind of jokingly talk about final protective fires, but we don't actually plan them. We don't execute them very well. So what does that look like, especially going forward at the tactical level or the operational level? You know, how do you operationally retreat out of a campaign? So that's what I'm reading uh, when I'm not listening to romance novels when I go running. Okay, interesting. Brett, can you top that? Um, no, I can't. Um, <laughs> I, I, I am currently reading uh, The Chinese Invasion Threat, Taiwan's Defense and American Strategy in Asia by Ian Easton. And it is... Uh, it is basically an examination of how China would invade Taiwan if they do decide to do so. It's based on uh, what can be found open source and what has leaked from both the uh, Chinese side and the Taiwanese side on their war plans and what they would do. And it's a very good corrective to the conventional wisdom, which is that the People's Republic of China can invade Taiwan and it'll be a walk in the park anytime they want to do it. That's certainly not the case. Uh, if you're familiar with amphibious operations and how geography and the maritime domain interacts with those uh, operations, then it's a little more difficult than that. So uh, this book so far, I'm about halfway through, is a good corrective to that conventional wisdom, which I don't think is based in reality. Uh, and the other thing I'm anxiously awaiting is uh, my copy of Carl von Clausewitz's Guide to Tactics. Edited by Olivia Garrard, uh, which has, has recently been released by Marine Corps University Press. Uh, I did write an introduction for her for that, uh, so I won't be reading that again, but I will read the rest of it again. <laughs> we are excited. I Thank you for reminding me. I need to follow up with her. We're going to have her on the podcast here in a couple of weeks as well. So yeah, I am very excited for that book that it's out. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of Marine Corps University, follow us on social media at at Marine Corps U. Special thanks to our intrepid producer, Jen Patcha Howell, and our show manager, Captain Michael Goff. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of Marine Corps University.